you are Timothy Britton Catlin, Dr. Timothy Britton Catlin, I should say. You are a reader in architecture at the University of Kent, is that correct? That's correct. And your focus of study has been on predominantly on neo-Gothic architecture, is that also correct? Not exactly. It's been, to be very specific about it, it's been about what happens to the architectural profession and to architectural practice at times of change. So the Gothic revival was, a, was probably the biggest single moment of change for the practice of architecture. Uh, bigger, I think, uh, than the move to modernism uh, from the 19th, late 1930s onwards. And uh, it's also a theme that can be picked up at other intervals. Uh, for example, during the Edwardian period, when architecture changed very dramatically uh, and produced probably the only architecture in Britain until the high-tech period that was of international interest and significance. Uh, and indeed, it changed again uh, in the early, or the 1950s, I would say. And now, of course, it's changed again uh, in the light of the, more or less, the, the collapse of most modernist dogma and the replacement by something else, which seems to uh, include postmodernism to it. So it's those moments of big change that interest me. And what Bleak Houses was about is what happens to the people on the losing side, because the Gothic revival produced a lot of losers. It produced a lot of people who, whose careers uh, drew to an end fairly quickly because they weren't part of the ruling group or the group that got the jobs and made the most noise. And the Gothic revival was, uh, one of the things that's very distinct about it is that the Gothic revival was run by very young, very keen and very enthusiastic people. And those who had become architects in the, late, the Regency of the late Georgian period were not really able to cope with the onslaught that was poured on top of their heads. So uh, it was a very difficult time for many people, and in order to succeed in that period, you had to be not only following the latest tenets of, of what the Gothic revivalists, the um, ecclesiologists, to be exact, wanted. If you wanted to get a decent job, you had a decent hearing, uh, not only um, did you have to do that, but you had to do it precisely. So there were victims, too, who tried to be Gothic revivalists and didn't quite get it, uh, and were ravished from one end to the other. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that what I, well, what I had assumed was the case, and the research for that book certainly proved it, was that the, the pro-modernists from the 1930s, at any rate, onwards, used almost exactly the same tactics as the Gothic revivalists had done. The principal tactic was to rubbish completely people uh, who didn't comply with what they wanted. That's to say, to try to destroy them as an enemy. Uh, by perpetually rubbishing everything that they did. This was invented essentially by the physiologists. Um, Pugin might have been responsible for it, but at least he had wit, uh, and he didn't on the whole uh, address uh, large crowds of people. But the people who followed, and in fact, to be fair to them, the principal architects uh, that we associate with Gothic with Michael Street and Butterfield and Gilbert Scott and so on, they didn't do it either. But uh, the ecclesiological movement, which sometimes is described as the most successful student group that's ever existed, which brought about complete change in church architecture uh, over the course of the 19th century, so that it bore no relation at the end of the 19th century to what it had done pre pugin Those people were uh, aggressive and assertive people. Modernists learned from them. They did the same things precisely. Uh, the idea was that if you weren't part of that gang, then you were out of it. Mm. So was it, what, what exactly was it in terms of the transition 
between pre-Gothic Revival and Gothic Revival? Because I think a lot of people are fairly aware of the sort of the shift to modernism, um, perhaps because it's a more recent thing, but perhaps because it's more relevant because, because modernism has sort of perpetuated over that time. What was the state of affairs before the Gothic Revival came along and sort of what were the series of events that caused it to occur? I have a different view about the origins of the Gothic Revival from most people. There is a wide view that the Gothic Revival was a kind of culmination of some sort of romantic, picturesque, nationalist uh, feeling expressed in, across all kinds of uh, forms of culture in, in novels and books and in history writing uh, and so on, uh, and that this was architects following along with their own thing. Now, that will have been an element for sure, but I don't think that it was the key element. What the Gothic Revival was doing, essentially, was it was uh, trying to respond to the uh, extraordinarily bad standards of design and construction, in particular, in architecture. There were uh, a series of scandals in buildings in the 1820s and 1830s, uh, which had shown that architects couldn't cope with what was required of them. These scandals were overspending scandals, the most famous example is Buckingham Palace, where uh, Parliament began to ask itself what had happened to all the money that had been chucking at this project, uh, which seemed to be never finished and was inadequate in many ways, um, and also funny to look at, one of the few buildings where people actually laughed at it when they saw the, the egg-like dome at the back of it. So that, that was that. Uh, there were a lot of public building projects going on. There was a lot of military work uh, in the 1820s after Napoleon, for example, and the British government decided that it wouldn't award any contracts to anybody unless they could agree on a price in advance uh, and that the, the, the tender would stick to that price. Now, architects were not in any position to cope with this, nor were they in any position to cope with the technological demands that were being put on them for things as simple as kitchens, for example. Very difficult for an architect of a small house in the 1820s, 1830s, to know what to do with all the kitchen stuff uh, and all the can't quite say bathroom stuff at that point, but you can certainly say plumbing houses will have a, a house of quality will have water closets by 1840. Uh, there was heating, there was ventilating, and so on, and they didn't have the first idea of what to do with it. Uh, and you see in many designs for houses, and the ones I've looked at have been parsonage houses because these have got very complete sets of plans in many cases, that they are hiding the kitchens around the back or dressing them up not to look like kitchens or maybe not even drawing them at all in their, in their plans because they don't know what to do with it. The Gothic Revival kills all these birds with one stone because uh, what Fusion is essentially saying is that you should be able to understand from looking at a building how it stands up, what everything is, how everything is related to each other. It doesn't say it in that kind of modern language, but what is very clear uh, and what he does do is talk about the coherence of the whole thing. The whole building is conceived together and it, uh, it works itself into providing solutions for modern problems. He says, quite rightly, for example, uh, in his book An Apology, that first of all he says that all houses should be designed to suit the circumstances of modern life, generating peculiar circumstances or something is the phrase that he uses. So the house has to be like a house is needed to be, not like a medieval house in front. Mm. The uh, other thing he talks about in the same book, it's the book in which he addresses things that aren't churches, essentially, and he talks about shops. Uh, and he shows in a drawing how a Gothic form of construction can provide you with a perfectly acceptable, from the aesthetic point of view, but a constructional point of view, a, a, a row of uh, shop fronts 
without it looking peculiar or, or, or irregular. He, he would have said that in part because he knew uh, Nash's Regent Street quadrant, for example, where the windows uh, didn't look right. They were too small, uh, and then they had to put the, the uh, colonnade, uh, they take away the colonnade. In the end. There was a mess going on, basically. It was a compromise and a mess uh, in order to try to get modern shop fronts uh, into a high-quality building. Mm. Because it sold this, like it sold modern houses. You can do a kitchen, do wonderful medieval kitchens. You do a medieval kitchen uh, in your modern house and you will find you've got space for everything and you don't have to be embarrassed about it. The single architectural event that tells you more than anything else is in Pugin's own house, the Grange in Ramsgate, where you approach that building down the side of the back of the kitchen. And the Georgian architect would have done anything to avoid this situation. Mm. The kitchen itself would have been around the side of the back or something. Uh, in Pugin's case, you run along the back of the scullery and the back of the kitchen before arriving at the front door, because there's no longer any feeling that something that architecture can't deal with some things, can deal with anything. It's very, very significant moment for architects everywhere. They can give up struggling with what modern life demands of them uh, and, and answer it well with a Gothic solution. So that, in my, to my mind, is what Gothic revival is about. Uh, and, of course, if you are looking at every element of a building as being expressive of what it does, sometimes exaggerating what it does, like a very steep group exaggerating what it does, then, of course, you can itemise them uh, mm. and you can go out to tender and get an accurate price. <laughs> now, which comes first, I don't know, but my feeling is that that's the feeling, that's the situation in the architectural profession that Fusion is addressing. Uh, he was venerated by other architects for, amongst other things, restoring the status of the architect as the person who made all the major decisions. And to be the person who makes all the major decisions, you've got to be in control of all of them and know how to deal with them. So that, I think, is what the Gothic Revival is really about. I don't think it's to do with like, ghosts and castles. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I remember you when you were talking about the Grange um, previously. I don't know. I don't know whether you've said it explicitly, but you talked about um, where you got sort of everything comes off of one central hall space, yes. and it's effectively it's an emergent plan out of the function of the building rather than say a Palladian example of where you have a specific box that you have to fill in a certain yes. set of ways. Yes. Um, and sort of from a more theoretical point of view, I've I've and having written about this previously, I sort of see Gothic and consequently Gothic Revival as an emergent philosophy in architecture, effectively. It's, I mean, it's obviously a cliche to say form follows function, but it's a, it, it comes out of what the building has to do and how it's oriented and how it's, how it's fulfilling the function that you want it to fulfill, rather than a sort of a top-down imposed view of the theory of the philosophy behind it. So would you, is there, was there any aspect leading up to the Gothic Revival in terms of a, a philosophical change or a political change um, or a sort of general theoretical change as to why people felt that this direction was the way to go at that point in time? Yes, there are. There are a lot of specific reasons. I would say that what happened was that pre-Pugin, architects were turning a diagram into a plan, uh, whereas the, what the Pugin people are doing is turning a plan into a diagram. This is what I mean by that. The pre-Pugin houses are boxes, essentially, single-pile houses, double-pile houses, a simple box for all kinds of sensible reasons, and then the number of external walls, the simplest roof, and so on. And then you then divide that diagrammatic box up into form a plan and put, try to fill it out with rooms. 
uh, as you know, students in early stages of design do this a lot. They have their outside shape and then they try and fit the rooms. So that's what's going on. Fusion is turning a plan into a diagram in the sense that what he's doing is he's laying it out to suit his own purposes, the purposes of the brief. Uh, and what you end up with is a building whose plan represents the different priorities of the, uh, of the architect. Now, let me give you some examples of that. I'll take first of all the simple pinwheel plan, which is what we say because we don't want to say swastika plan of future zone houses. In these pinwheel plans, the rooms revolve around a central hall so that each long axis of each wing is at right angles to the one that is next to it. So it does end up looking a bit like a swastika. This makes the house, first of all, very expressive from the outside. When you stand outside one of these houses, you need only look up at the gables as they rotate to work out precisely how the house is standing up. So it's carrying out this expressive, constructional, technological message of the Gothic Revival that I was talking about first. That's the first thing it's doing. The second thing that that Fusion was doing was that I think uh, that he was exaggerating the movement between the rooms. You can see this a bit in where he positions the doors. In the Grange, for example, the, the dining room door could be a lot closer to the sitting room door, but it isn't. Uh, and that's in order for the architect to impose their idea of how you should move about the house. Fusion himself is a great believer in processions. He saw it as a kind of Catholic thing. He did it in his own home. Uh, and by stretching out these lengths, you are engaging more with the, with, with the house itself. The house can do more for you. Now, in a house, that sounds fairly vague, but in a building such as a religious institution, it's not at all vague. Pugin designed a series of convents where uh, the walking through the building is an enormously important part of it. Mm. The, the very striking example in Nottingham, where Pugin designed his finest, um, his, his finest uh, uh, convent, in my opinion, where there's a modest front door in fact, it's a building about which a lot can be said. It's a very, very striking building. I think it's extraordinary to think of something like that going up in the late 1840s. You, they, they, you are confronted with a small entrance door. If you were very tall, or if you were carrying a long stick, you could touch the wall above left of where you're standing, uh, and you would be on the outside of what, what they call Our Lady's Cloister, which was meant to be the innermost contemplative space in the monastery. It's right by the front door. But to get from the front door to it on the inside, you have to go all the way through the whole length of the building and then up to the floor above and then all the way back again. Now, Putin is doing this as an architect because it's giving you a lot more building for your money, let's say, by stretching out the inside, the building feels bigger than it is. But what it's also doing is it's also giving a different character to each arm of the cloister or the corridor which you are walking through. He used cloisters a lot uses the word cloister sometimes to refer even to quite a small piece of corridor. Mm. You to go there. I can think of one very small house where he calls it, for example, where he calls it about you know, 10 foot less, I think, probably, uh, his uh, a cloister. There's a lot of writing in the Catholic press at this time as to how, what the code of behaviour should be in new monastic institutions and how those who live there should have a different attitude and a different frame of mind uh, from when they're in their community room, in the chapel, in the refectory, uh, in the parlour, and so on, how they, how their mood, their attitude should be different. It's quite overstated, but you'd expect that to be the case because the great interest of the 1840s, I suppose, is positivism. That's to say, 
detailing, quantifying uh, experiences of life as far as possible. So those who are interested in the behaviour of people, the behaviour of institutions, are describing in some detail what exactly those people should be doing, what they should be wearing, and what they should be thinking at any one point. And and Pugin is building his buildings around this. Very long well, I was I was in the um, Palace of Westminster the other day, and you get that feeling, even though they're not explicitly cloisters. You do get that, like you say, processional feeling of moving between spaces. And obviously, of course, Barry was involved in the actual planning of the building. Um, but the sort of the sense that you get that you are entering different voids, different spaces, and then different processions or corridors between them is a very strong sense. And I guess Pugin's detailing was a, a large part of that. One of the weirdest ones of all is that at Cotton College, uh, Pugin designed a, um, uh, it was a, I can't remember it was a school or a seminary originally, it might have been a seminary originally, and a, and a church office, a Wolfram's church, and uh, the Countess of Shrewsbury, that's to say the wife of his best patron, herself donated some money for a cloister between the main seminary building and the church itself. And in order to go through the building, into the church, you change angle about three or four times. It's clearly not necessary for any function, but it evidently was liturgically or religiously necessary in order to experience the building mm. the way in which Fusion wanted you to do it. So some of it comes simply from cheap building. You can get, get, get quite a grand plant building by doing very large amounts of cloister and corridor and so on. Uh, but some of it, and the more interesting part of it, is an architectural expression of something that is much wider and is going on in society, which is a much higher expectation of exactness and precision uh, in aspects of life and how to deal with them and how to how to reflect them. There is a wonderful convent in in um, Cheadle in Staffordshire, which is where Fusion's finest church is, uh, and any normal architect would have built a, a cube-shaped building in the garden as the convent to go with it. But Fusion instead smears his building all the way along the edge of the site so that the if the if the uh, sisters of Mercy are going to walk from the church to their community room at the, de- at the back of the convent building, converted building which Fiji enormously extended, they have to walk something like 60 metres to get there uh, as opposed to probably less than 10 if they went in a straight line. So he, he Sounds was, like Norman Foster's Apple Campus. <laughs> <laughs> shows you also how the architect can dominate the experience of a building mm. and that uh, is one of the things that made the fusion so venerated I think. Mm. No longer being a person who drew up things at you know, what we would now call 150, there, instead of being one of those people, it was the person who controlled every single aspect of it and whose genius lay in forming, making sure that all those aspects form one single coherent method. You have to be mm. a genius designer to do it. He wasn't a normal person. He did tens of thousands of drawings for the Palace of Westminster on his own, and that's just one thing he was doing, and he was hardly paid for it. He had a photographic memory for details of churches. Uh, John Hartman Powell, who worked for him, said that he never saw him once copy repeat a detail. He could always think of another one. Uh, before Pugin came along, there were about six patterns, the Gothic patterns that people used, true floors and ultrafolds and so on, cusps and so on. That this was transformed into so many different details that you could use a different one every day for the whole of your mm. whole of your life, and you could work out when he was doing them, how quickly he was doing them by looking at his diary, which tells you where he was going. 
So uh, it, it's just a staggering achievement. It's not representative of anything that any normal person could do. But what it did have with it was it did have a very exciting message for architects who were bored of the really quite boring architecture. It was quite charming very often, but often, but mostly quite boring architecture of the 1830s. Mm. No, I think it's interesting that you sort of, you mentioned the, this idea of the architect becoming the central figure again, um, because I think there's a, almost a similar argument going on now in terms of the sort of the, the role of the architect and the marginalisation of the architect. So was that something that was happening before Pugin came along, before the Gothic Revival? Was the architect becoming a more marginalised figure back then as well? Yes, uh, architects never been anything much other than marginalised. <laughs> more marginalised than ever been before, because if you are if your incompetence is repeatedly shared up in the public. very vulnerable, and uh, we know from being in Bloomsbury that Mr. Cubitt, the builder, is saying to his clients, why do you want these prima donnas? All they do is they just cause trouble. I, my brother, Lewis, sits in the back office control what you want quickly. We will tell you what it will cost, and that is what it will cost. Uh, it threatens the architectural profession, mm. because uh, on the whole, it's great sadness of life for us architects, is that most people don't really care what buildings look like. So mm, at least not at a conscious level. Not at a conscious level, probably not even, sometimes just not at all, full stop. So if the builder says, I will knock this up, and that's it, uh, then that, and it will cost you less, and you won't have to deal with some other person, then they think, great, we'll bring them on. And that is, of course, what was, what was going on. Mm. The late Georgian period is the great period of the speculative builder. Uh, building development is very sophisticated in England for historical reasons. Uh, and therefore, there are a lot of very efficient clients who get builders to design things and put them up for them um, in an efficient way. And architects certainly don't should be being um, marginalised in this. So that's why it, it brought the architectural profession back to life, no question about it. And I, I think also that probably, possibly, the modernists thought that they would go the same way to try to make cult figures uh, of the big people behind it, uh, and also to really know. Mm. Was, was there a sort of a strong aspect of ego to it as well? Pugin strikes me, like you say, he wasn't a normal person in any, any traditional sense of normal. Um, but was, was that sort of sense of the egotistical architect, almost a stereotype, I guess, was that a strong element in, in his sort of philosophy in returning to this central idea yes. of the architect? Yeah, yeah. Of, value, uh, of, high, of a high quality building for a lot of reasons. 
very prominent building, everybody can see it. It's a very expensive building that people value it. If it has some element of being a community project to it, and it probably were, because people have to raise money for these churches, it's not coming out of nowhere, that, then that also is a positive thing. If you are competing with the non-conformist churches and the Roman Catholics and so on, these are all reasons why you should spend uh, a lot of money on a prominent church building. If you can also do the thing that caused Godness such excitement, but which in reality is slightly different, and that is claim that this is a moral way of building, then you are just winning on every front. So that uh, is perhaps a good way of putting it, but it's not an inaccurate way of saying how it was that Britain acquired, England for sure, acquired uh, such a staggeringly rich range and variety of new church buildings and smaller mm. church buildings in the 19th century. It said that something like 96% of England's medieval churches were restored in the 19th century. There are a lot of new ones. So uh, it is, it's a powerful thing that's going on. Fusion was aware, architects were aware, that in the Middle Ages when Gothic buildings went up, they were by far and away the most sophisticated thing in existence technologically compared to anything else that those people living in their mudhuts and throwing you know, lumps of lead and fire at each other. That in, that, in, in those days, the construction, the design and construction of the building was the most sophisticated thing that could possibly be. Look at medieval structures now, uh, and you, it's easy to feel astonished by how sophisticated that is uh, compared to how people lived and worked most of the time. And so there is a feeling also that you want to get back to that point where uh, the architect is in control of the sophisticated technology and the budget to do it. It's one of many similarities between the Gothic Revival and high tech, for example. Mm. Expensive, sophisticated, technical stuff which most people can't really understand. Well, does that, to that extent, does the Gothic and Gothic Revival le only really lend itself, therefore, to public buildings or pro singular prominent buildings that have perhaps higher budgets or where quality is put in a more important place than um, sort of units or cost per square meter or anything? Yeah, yeah. The, the, one of the objections to the Gothic Revival in the early days was that it was going to be more expensive than building a cheap brick box commissioner's church of the kind that was going up in the early decades of the, of the century, but Fusion faced this time and time again, said no, it isn't necessarily true. Gothic building is not necessarily more expensive. What he used to say was that you can put, in, once you've got the bones right, you can put in the other stuff and extend it and enlarge it later, because a Gothic building doesn't, isn't, of course, symmetrical, doesn't have to be finished mm. or look finished. All these things that classical buildings do have to be, you can't build one half of a symmetrical front of the other half. But Gothic doesn't have those problems. You can make it smaller and then extend it. That was one thing he said. But it's also true that these convent buildings I've been talking about were fantastically cheap buildings. In fact, it makes it even more striking that so much of such small budgets was spent on these long corridor spaces. They're really cheap, these things. They're brick, brick boxes with holes fixed in them. Mm. Uh, and they can demonstrate how you can get enormous grandeur from, uh, from, from the kind of control space probably at but the only really helpful thing he had said about himself was that he learned everything from having been uh, a stage set builder at the Cavendon Theatre. It's now been rebuilt, of course, mm. uh, And this was a job, job he did when he was young. And um, it's a very, it's a very uh, profoundly accurate comment because he knew that you can make a building look bigger and grander by having the light come from the right direction at the right moment just to stage set designers get depth on stage 
between exactly the same thing. The, uh, they refused to live in Fusion's best rectory house, the Ransom, Ramshaw's now called in Dorset, which is a, a fabulous house, and the one where he got everything right. He said the thing about that house was the whole life of the house changed throughout the day as the light crept through through it with articulated corridors and so on. It just does staggering things. And that's a stage set designer's knack that he incorporated into his architectural design. And that's not expensive. That one, it wasn't expensive building, but not because of that. Yeah, you definitely get a sense of the theatrical when you're in his, his yes. buildings, but I don't know whether that's just because we're not used to those kinds of buildings anymore or that kind of detailing. Um, so what was it that stopped Gothic Revival architecture from spreading more widely and from sort of from uh, leeching into more domestic architecture or mass housing or anything like that in the same way that Georgian did? Uh, it slightly did more than you might think. Um, when I looked at parsonage houses of the early 19th century because the records are so good, as opposed to any other kind of detached house where they hardly ever exist. And, or at any rate, not where you can find these things. And what is very clear is that architects everywhere from the north coast of Northumberland and south coast of Cornwall started copying bits out of these early Fijian houses. Straight away, you get one very specific phenomenon, a very surprising one, is that people with Georgian houses with very conventional and stiff floor layouts, a narrow corridor or the rooms on the side is the most common one, would start to rebuild the inside of their houses so that they had stair halls in the Fijian sense. <laughs> so they were very widely copied. I don't know how it happened. Um, I have no idea how it happened, but too much of it happened for it to be a coincidence. Mm. It did choose a lot of different themes and, and, and take them further all over the place. So it, it's true that we, it's difficult to think that big Gothic houses, because there are houses, there's only one house in really, real size by Scott Kellen in Nottinghamshire. Uh, there are houses by Burgess, which are bigger than um, Parsonages, but they didn't on the whole do houses. Uh, I don't... It, it might have been because they were essentially church architects who only do the house when somebody asked them. Mm. Did it reach ordinary terrace housing? Well, it did a bit, I think. Uh, it's worth remembering that many Georgian houses are really badly built. Tell me about it. Yeah, <laughs> and a lot of things going on throughout the 19th century to improve the standard of building construction, uh, and they are sometimes uh, the London Building Acts uh, insisting on the, the, increasingly raising the standards of party walls and room sizes and so on. So, a bit of that is going on at the same time. So, it may not have come off the Gothic Revival, but for sure it comes out of the same motives as the Gothic Revival, which is to be much more rational and organized scientific about the design of buildings. So that, that is happening. They don't look very gothic, but then Pugin's houses actually don't they don't have pointy windows themselves, mm. so they don't have a well, there's almost a contradiction from what I can see because Gothic is very a very vertical style, effectively, or sense of building, and it obviously lends itself to ecclesiastical architecture, cathedral churches, because of that. And that the the domestic has always been a more horizontal realm, generally, and has, and therefore lends itself less well, perhaps, to Gothic architecture as a as a yeah, style. Sure. What they tended to do was to horizontalize his own designs. 
So a house would look very much like a Grange, for example, but the difference was that the architect had used various tricks to make it seem more horizontal, so string courses and that kind of thing, to, to emphasise the horizontality of it, which must have been seen as being, being English in some way. Putin's houses are not really Gothic at all. They are Jack Beard. I would hated anyone to say it, but it is the case. Is that what they, if they look like anything, and they don't look, in fact, you wouldn't mistake one for a Jacobean house. Uh, like, for example, an Edwardian Jacobean house, you wouldn't mm. mistake it for a genuine Jacobean one. But you wouldn't mistake a, a Putin one because of the, the, the form of the building overall is completely different. The layout is completely different. There isn't any attempt to, to look Jacobean. The Jacobean is what they are, if you look at the details of them, look at the windows of them and so on. But you're right, it, he was greatly for verticality as being the thing that gave architecture importance. And he says that the spiral form, by which he doesn't mean an actual spiral, it means the form of a spire. This is the thing mm. that distinguishes, as he would call it, Christian architecture. There's nothing to suppose that he was particularly interested in houses. And there's not that much to suppose that the other major Gothic of London architects were that interested in houses. So they made not very good ones, but they didn't talk about them or explain them or justify them very much. Uh, in the case of, there's quite a sad story uh, where Fujii gets attacked by these vicious theologians later on. One of the things that they attack is the clergy house where the bishop uh, lives in Nottingham, which is adjacent between, in fact, the cathedral St. Barnabas, which is one of these great buildings, and the wonderful convent I was talking about earlier. And uh, he says, well, it's just a cheap house, is what he says. It doesn't even try to defend what is, in fact, quite an unusual, well, quite an unusual building. Mm. Uh, so uh, they weren't that interested in it. Now, this changes uh, towards the end of the 19th century when basically most of the churches have been done, uh, and the money to build is accumulated in different sorts of hands. And so towards the end of the 19th century, you get, as you know, people increasingly spending absolutely enormous amounts on very high-quality houses. Uh, those people, many of them, were great enthusiasts of the future, but I've never come across anyone saying anything about Puginian houses, especially. So, was he the the sort of the pioneer of the Gothic revival movement, or were there, did he have followers around him, or was he sort of taking something that someone else had started and developing it further? No, the, 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 um, and that's why we have it, and the Belgians have it, because it was a circle of Puget admirers in Bruges uh, with an architect who, who was um, may not have Puget's great genius, but was certainly very competent Gothic architect called Bethune. Uh, at their centre, uh, and that's why if you go if you go on the Eurostar into Belgium, you'll notice you'll know when you've gone from France to Belgium, and suddenly you get what you look like from Paris churches because they've been restored and Gothic revival. But you do get there is a distinct Gothic revival in uh, in Belgium, uh, and there isn't really anywhere else. Mm. Uh, and that's, I suppose, some tribute to him as a person. Uh, I don't know to what extent you come across this, but if you study the history of 19th century architecture at a European school, um, it's all completely different. They didn't have the Gothic Revival really. They famously, they all learned about Semper. Nobody ever did anything about Semper, because people mm. were more interesting, basically. <laughs> and you can see the effects from every window. Um, yeah, yeah. Because you can't so much with Semper, I would say. So what happened towards the end of the, of the Gothic Revival then? What what drove people to either become tired of it? Because I understand that it sort of got out of hand, effectively, and there was a, in the Edwardian period. Yeah, I think you get bored. You move on to the next generation. Gilbert Scott, Gilbert Scott's uh, son, known always as George Gilbert Scott Jr., uh, was a very able Gothic architect and restorer. It's very fine buildings in 
Cambridge, which I've sometimes attributed to the father, but in fact it was the son who did them. But he starts building houses in a Queen, Queen Anne style uh, at a certain point. Maybe it's to annoy admirers of his father. Maybe he just wants something. I think people get bored a lot. Mm. These things go round in circles. Yeah, people do get bored uh, of styles. It's a generational thing involved in it, uh, I would say. Uh, very few of some of Putin's great end of the century admirers uh, are particularly imitating his church stuff, Pearson, I suppose. But those people, people who are young, in, or young-ish, 30 to 40, young architects, in 1900, they are two generations away from Putin now. So mm. they can react against the people who are reacting against Putin and bring, and bring back him, uh, I would say. Yeah. And then obviously we transitioned into the modernist period yeah. um, through various means. Um, but that's, I mean, you talk about people getting bored, but modernism effectively has been around for effectively 100 years now yes. uh, in its various forms. And obviously there have been reactions against it temporarily with postmodernism. Um, but wh- where do you sort of see architectural theory being at now in terms of a status and where, where do you think it might go in the sort of coming years? I don't know. The, the British are very un-theoretical and sometimes anti-intellectual in their discussion of buildings. Again, it marks out what Putin and the Gothic are doing, which we talked about entirely as a trying to do in pragmatic terms. But, uh, uh, as it, 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 what this, this is different from what the French and the Germans and so on do, where there's kind of intellectual basis to it, right? There isn't any intellectual basis to it. It is what it is. That's completely English for one another. Uh, and that's always the case, whatever, whatever period we are at. And people don't much now talk about um, the theory or the intellectual theory of architecture. The word theory, of course, carries particular connotations. The, nothing was more surprising to me than that the MIT press should be generous enough to publish my book, because the, in a way that book is very much in opposition to a line that uh, the great editor, Roger Cronin, took for... Um, 20 years or so about promoting architectural theory, uh, and I'm pretty anti uh, in that book, a pretty anti theory thing because it's the buildings. This is your, your book, Bleak Houses. That's the Bleak Houses. Now, the book Bleak Houses um, has this British anti theory thing in it, uh, and theory carries with it nowadays a particular connotation of a certain kind of intellectual conversation about buildings. It was mainly going on in the United States. Uh, I think, um, in the in 1990s, 2000s a bit, uh, and slightly ebbed away at the moment. So theory within inverted commas is different from theory. Mm-hmm. The, um, the, there is very little. The place where architectural theory without inverted commas went living on is in architectural education. And in fact, it's really only in architectural education this funny, blunt, old, modernist approach still exists, that you still find, for example, books by Rona Van, Greatest Years, on a reading list, as if it had any practical application of any sort whatsoever. Of course, a writer like Bannon, like a writer like Frampton, has got a certain historical value as a person recording opinions of a certain period, but the idea that this should be a textbook for somebody seems to me to be clearly absurd. It's a long time ago now. It can't be true that the things that architects were, that a certain very small group of, um, of uh, fringe people in the 1920s were trying to do can be of that much relevance to anything really mm. that gets addressed today. Well, do you think there are 
a sort of eternal truths in architecture that, that transcend time periods? Well, I think there are two types of architectural personality. There is bluntly a, simply, in simple terms, there is a Gothic type and there is a classical type. There are people who are not bothered by buildings being not finished or by being rough or being, by being mysterious in some way uh, or of reflecting the stuff that they're made of uh, or of representing what goes on inside. There are those kind of people and there are those kind of buildings. Those kind of people tend to like those kind of buildings. The uh, justice, there are, in opposition to that, there are, there's a classical kind of person who likes their building to be finished, to be ordered, to be proportionate, to have clear allegorical value who isn't bothered by what it's actually made of. Uh, for example, David Walking always used to say that all buildings are artificial things, they didn't grow out of the ground. So therefore, you shouldn't be embarrassed about the fact that it's made out of some man made component. Because mm. the whole thing is man made, the start with a perfectly reasonable argument. So I think that the division into types and approaches uh, is certainly uh, always, is, is always there. I don't think that any of the rest of it is especially always there, I don't think. The modernists, like the Gothic revivalists, very happy to come back to my, my favourite theme again, uh, the modernists' form of attack was to rubbish anybody else, uh, as if to say that nothing other than the true cult is an acceptable way of teaching. They were teaching like this in this building in the 1980s, as I'm well aware, and uh, I don't suppose they still are, but it's not really that long ago that they were still doing this. That there was only one way uh, in which you could um, design, and if you didn't um, something wrong with you as a person, that was generally the line that was, that was adopted. How uh, the particular style of the buildings, the particular theoretical approach of those people, of course, changes from generation to generation, doesn't stay the same. But the attitudes, the Gothic and the classical uh, attitudes, for one, and this kind of uh, groupthink cult attitude for another, those things go on reoccurring in every generation. Mm. Well, I, I've sort of been wondering recently um, about why it is that classicism has this sort of cult following amongst a very small number of people, and why that doesn't apply to whether it's Gothic or any other historical styles. Yeah, it's and I think I think you're you're right to touch on the idea of this sort of almost utopian, perfect idea of, or maybe Arcadian idea of a, an ideal city that's built of these classical uh, elements. And maybe that doesn't, like you say, relate to a, a more gothic philosophy, which I would call emergent, um, and that it, that doesn't fit the sort of the perfect symmetrical uh, laid out narrative. Uh, I think that in this country it reflects the basic English cultural divide between the Puritans and the Hedonists. <laughs> so those people who want to wind up the Puritans will go very strongly the other way, and I'm sure that. That uh, David, Walk well, David Walking, for whom I have a great deal of respect, right really in much of what he said, but that, that quite a lot of what motivated David was to annoy the, the Pope faced sanctimonious Puritans with their straight lines and their morality. He didn't like it. Uh, and there are other people maybe who do that as well. Um, I, why they should necessarily have landed on classical architecture, I don't know, but I, I, it's to do with that. It's not only to do with that, there are some practitioners of, of classical looking architecture who are, in, uh, who are first rate uh, designers and architects uh, who would have done well in every generation. There are some uh, classical, I will name some of them because there are now quite a few. I start with a graduate of this school um, around the same time as me, John Simpson, 
Um, but the buildings that were produced by Beth and treated by Craig Hamilton uh, and by uh, several others are really astonishingly high quality and are not the result of wanting to annoy other people. Mm. But the business about wanting to annoy other people, it, 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 that, that battles, you know, that cultural divide <laughs> goes right across. But do you think the the modernists, so far as that's a homogenous group, fit into that sort of Puritan idea, or is that? Yeah, totally, absolutely. Yeah. I was very struck by um, there was a there was a uh, an exchange on Twitter that I was very struck by uh, the, from the from the modernists against post postmodernists, and this was I can't remember what the circumstances were exactly, but what was going on here was that the, the, the modernist critics, who were young people, they seem young to me. Anyway, who were young people, were deriding the fact that the 20th century society had uh, successfully uh, managed to prevent the uh, number one poultry in the James Bailey movie from being mutilated on the ground floor. There was a nation of shopkeepers type of idea to fill in the arcades, mm. which would have changed proportionally. And straight away, these people, young people, came out with the arguments, oh, it's all about, should be, I think the expression they used was, should there be a prank in the lobby? Uh, whereas our architecture, our modernist architecture, is noble stuff to do with housing the poor and so on. But that's just it, the image cultural divide right in front of your face. Mm. Uh, you can't um, make a judgment about a building whether it fits in this or that imaginary Labour Party program and things. It's mm. a dark thing to do. Buildings are, uh, uh, as David Watkins said, they're things that people make. They aren't, uh, that, that, they don't really carry with them all that stuff. The most successful of the mass public housing that was built in the 1950s was just was totally Swedish and stuff. It was totally brutalist. It was very nice. It was pretty. It, uh, it was copied off Swedish housing, which I don't know enough about the politics of that really, but what I know for sure is the official attitude towards it that this is an architecture of being nice to people. Uh, and so it was often, pretty is very often what it was. It's very striking that you don't hear a lot of these critics ever say how great that was, but that housed many more people far better uh, than Brutus buildings. Brutus buildings are fantastic and exciting sculptures sometimes, but sometimes a lot of them are simply disgusting. The, the back of, the back of, the, the front of Dennis Lauston's housing at Christ College in Cambridge looks wonderful, even though there is a there was a mountain of technical problems with it. The back of it was beyond disgusting originally. It was, it, it, it was the, the dustbins and the turning circles and <laughs> the next thing. And, um, the idea that somehow you have to accept it because it's part of this uh, heroic way of serving society is essentially a daft one, I think. That in the end, they infill the back of it with a, a brick thing, comic brick thing, it's got gothic decorations on it. <laughs> so you have these two things sitting together. Well, I think it's interesting what you mentioned earlier about Gothic being able to be adapted and added to more easily because of the sort of the way it's constructed and not having the same sort of symmetrical constraints that classicism has. And I think, you, I mean, you can see this in the examples. I was looking at Lutchens' houses the other day when he's, I don't know, it's not Gothic Revival, but adding onto something that's 400 years older and you can barely tell the difference because it's continuing the same sort of philosophy. And like you say, it doesn't fit that symmetrical ideal. Um, so I, I think... In terms of the, again, trying to link this back to the sort of theoretical side of it, do you think there's a, a strong political element in the advocation of certain style, styles or ways of building over others? Are there sort of political groups that match quite closely with architectural groups, effectively? 
there is to some extent at any given point some degree of exploitation of the architectural profession by, by uh, political attitudes. Uh, I think certainly say that. But there isn't any necessary connection, I don't think, at all between the two. There's no particular reason why, why there should be. It's not really quite good enough to look at classical buildings and say this is the architectural palaces and therefore it's no use to most people. It isn't really true in practice. Uh, in any case, most buildings nowadays don't fit into any particular category at all, which mm. is a shame, I think. I think that the thing that is missing, the thing that modernism succeeded in destroying, was the continuity of historical, of historical knowledge. There are plenty of examples of excellent architects who design buildings using ideas which are essentially drawn from different historical from different historical periods. They may or they may not be conscious of doing it. The building by um, Stephen Kathleen de la Peña, the Flint House, mm. this is essentially a medieval type of building, I think. Uh, Stephen Taylor has designed houses that have medieval feeling about them, obviously come from a lot of knowledge. One architect who, who knows a ton about historical building uh, and is very aware of it and the use of it is Charles Holland. Uh, I think that Charles's house for Essex with Grayson Perry, for example, looks to me like a building of the 1830s. <laughs> the English are investigating what their symbolism means and, and, and trying to do it through existing church structures. He doesn't think that's the case. He thinks it's something else, but I don't think that that matters. That there are plenty of people doing it. The thing that I'm very struck by is that nobody ever talks about this in architecture schools. They just don't talk about it at all. It's mm. very, very peculiar. It's very, very peculiar to have a profession where uh, the entire past of it is just wiped out and you're, le- you're left to learn about it for yourself. Really. It's a very odd thing to do. It's almost as if, as if architects... Yeah, well, it's, it's always struck me how little conversation there is, both in, I suppose, in education and in, especially in practice, about why you build something a particular way, about, like, about the theory, effectively, about saying why, why are we doing this this way, why are we doing that that way, not just oh, let's do this this way, and end of conversation. We, had a, we held a debate at the Kent School of Architecture recently where we wanted to raise some of these points precisely. What sort of things should we be doing and why? Now, we were talking more about general attitudes because it's the first discussion in the series uh, as opposed to specific design processes, that's for sure. But what I was, uh, what I noticed, I wasn't very surprised by this, but what I noticed was that those students, mostly second-year students in the audience, two or three of them said, how come we don't know about all this stuff? How come we don't have the words to describe uh, these historical types and processes? Uh, and they're right, of course. It's not, and, and the reason why they don't is because all those things are taken off reading lists. You never see in a, almost never see, very rare to see uh, on a reading list for a design project. It's very rare to see anything that's done, uh, even about the details of the natural architecture. Mm. This isn't in there. Even though, in practice, most building is the alteration. Most architects work consists of alterating something, or altering something that already exists, or building in an existing streetscape of some sort. That's where most work is. Uh, and that was methodically destroyed in architecture schools. John Bootsman tells a story about how he arrived at the, um, the Regent Street Polytechnic, which is now the University of Westminster in the 1950s, and he was told by the head of the school, I think, 
that they had abolished all reading. They had thrown away all the books because architecture was about providing a technological solution to something, uh, and everything else was a, was a nonsense or a distraction. It was rubbish, you know, that must be hidden, totally Gothic revival, an enemy that must be destroyed, you know, totally Gothic revival attitude to it. Uh, and it took him a long time uh, to be able to build up the kind of reading that interested him, mostly ethnographical, in his case, anthropological and so on, and about symbolism and all these things. It took him a long time to get there because the, the books had actually been removed and destroyed mm. from the libraries. Uh, I had a very enjoyable moment at the beginning, just a couple of weeks ago, when I started to write the brief for the second year design project uh, at my school. I simply selected all and deleted the entire accumulated reading. So why does anybody need to know what came to the said? It's about 30 years later, 40 years later. We aren't there anymore. Well, it's not, although it's interesting from a historical point of view to know what theoretical arguments they had in 1928, not really the thing that necessarily you should be giving priority to in mm. the second year, when there is a whole lot more. Do you still have a pattern language on your reading list? Well, I never did. Uh, it had a kind of culty... I, actually, no, I left it on as a curiosity. I, I divided it into three categories. into books that students must read. Well, the, these are standard university... Um, categories for reading lists to do with how many copies they were essentially that's why they do it. But the, they have three categories. One is called must read, one is should read, and one is could read. I left three books for this project, which is for the it's what we now call collective dwelling, the housing scheme essentially. Mm. And I did uh, I left three books in must read and the three books in must read were the Brunskill's um, Book of Vernacular Architecture, Gordon Cullen's New Townscape, Concise Townscape, uh, and Peter Katz's book on new urbanism, not because it's particularly great, but because it's particularly relevant to this project. That, that's why that's mm. uh, Then I had a group of, say, six could reads where I said to people, have a go at reading, at least looking at two or three of these. And some of those are about particular historical building types, uh, and some of them are, uh, for example, Stephen Proctor and uh, Andrew Matthews's book about their own housing uh, I've left into that category and then there's a lot of stuff that you could if you feel like it, you're in the, you've got half an hour to fill and you're in the library and why not have a look and I left the pattern language in there. I never really liked it, it was very big when I was a student in the early 80s and it, it had to be a, a kind of creepy colour feeling <laughs> Well, yeah, well, I was, I was flicking through my copy of it again the other day and re realising how useful it could have been had I actually paid more attention to it at the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but no, I, I agree with you about the state of sort of theory in, in architectural education. It wasn't until after, certainly after undergraduate and well into sort of postgraduate that I actually got properly into theory and started to think really about why it is that we're building the things that we're building. Um, but again, sort of going back to the contemporary state of affairs for a second, if we've been through, obviously, in the 80s, 70s and 80s, the postmodernist reaction to modernism, um, and then it's things have sort of reverted and then just sort of trundled along since then and now there's this new conversation with the uh, government's new building beautiful commission yes. and appointing Sir Roger Scruton to lead a commission um, 
what are your thoughts on how that might play out and how how the architectural profession can react to it or engage with it or what what direction should the conversation be going in in terms of how architectural theory and practice develop from here? Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the appointment of Roger Scruton uh, is to that organisation so I think somewhat less important than, it, than the newspapers made it out to be. I don't know how much notice people will take of it. Uh, there is an idea which I've heard from more than one person which is that the government didn't really know how controversial it was. That was clearly a name they knew from 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 circles, I suppose, uh, but whether it actually make any difference is rather hard to imagine. And I know it's actually rather, in, in a slightly sad way, the, the, the minister was, was saying uh, only recently, I think it's been in the AJ today, or certainly recently, that it wasn't supposed to be controversial, it was supposed to be something that attracted people's interest and attention uh, and gave great value to a high quality building. And actually, for all we might say about the politicians from the I'm quite prepared to believe that. Mm. It is the case that it didn't really pick up the whole package of it. Um, I, uh, the, um, but do, you, do you think there's, an in, there's a sort of sensitivity because of the, what happened in the 80s with Prince Charles and all that kind of thing? Yeah. There's, there's almost a, like the profession got burned recently and it doesn't want to get burned again, maybe. Yes, I think, yeah, I think Prince Charles behaved very badly in the 1980s. I don't think you could really have a head of state doing all out attacks on entire professions like that. It seems to me to be what you might call very unprofessional and unhelpful, really. But the thing is, achieved anything very much. Uh, I remember at that time, um, getting on a bus, I was working just off the western end of, of, of Westmore Grove, and I got on the, on the bus that goes down around the corner to Notting Hill. And on the bus, sitting next to me on those uh, seats that faced each other in the old Rootmasters, was Hugh Casson, I guess, as well, my heroes. And Hugh Casson was writing in a notebook, which in those days I had enough eyesight to be able to see. And he wrote, The Prince is right in what he says, but wrong in the way that he says it. Uh, and uh, I think that that was, that, that, that was true of him then, and I think it's still true now. I think getting involved in the Chelsea Barrett scheme in that way was a shocking thing to do. But uh, when he could perfectly well have done it in a completely transparent public way, uh, and everybody would have been the better for it, but he didn't. Um, there's always a slight sense that he's going over the heads of, or around the back of, the architectural, the architectural profession in order to, to, to make a headline. It's clearly a one-off, isn't it? Not, mm. not any kind of general phenomenon. It's just one person with interest in it who doesn't seem to make quite the most effective way of getting the results that he might want to get. Uh, you can't uh, underestimate the, um, some of the positive aspects of it in his own... Um, his, he had a school for a bit, didn't he? He still has an architectural foundation. Does a lot of, yeah. does a lot of very good work. Uh, architecture is very valuable stuff. There is absolutely no reason why all architects shouldn't know about traditional ways of building and use them when, 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 when in, in the situations that they think are right for them. You can't ever, I think, tag anyone for having knowledge of some kind about how buildings work and how they stand up. Uh, and it was able to um, make an argument for a, a, a sustainable environment argument for certain types of historic buildings. Sometimes those things are not completely proven, I don't think. Uh, to any great extent, but nevertheless, it was doing it. And it's, it's a thing. It's a thing worth hearing. The um, uh, that's not entirely the same as the other things that were going on at the same time. The postmodernism in the 1980s. Uh, I don't know. I should know by now, but I don't really know. But I've always suspected that there was on the part of some of those prominent postmodern architects in the 1980s 
uh, a sense of um, wanting to annoy the Puritans a bit, I think, probably. I think that that, I think you need to ask Terry Farrell whether he would actually say that. <laughs> I think it might have been there somewhere. Uh, I have spoken to Piersgoff about where was it coming from, and he said he just, he, ju- he, he did, you can see, my impression is that he was very happy to hear the criticism of it. I think it's the most happy way. Uh, it didn't bother him that people didn't like it. But that's not really where it's coming from. He liked American pop art. He liked, he said, the raunchy comment. He liked Alan Jones. Mm. He, 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 he liked that kind of thing. He found commercial clients who liked it as well. So he could prove that it was uh, a, a perfectly viable way of designing a building as well as an enjoyable way of designing a building. He was enjoying himself. Uh, they were enjoying themselves, those people. It's worth stressing what a rarity that was in, in the in the nineteen eighties when everyone was going around kind of faced and people up and everything. They could think of them. They uh, usually correctly, but it isn't anything to do with the design of a of a building, is it? Mm. Yeah, I mean it's interesting. You see, sort of, I think you're right. There'll always be people who enjoy just annoying, like you say, the Puritans or the critics. Yeah. And you see, the House for Essex and Charles Holland and Grayson Perry mm-hmm. strikes me as a prominent recent example of that of going so f- completely the opposite way yeah. um, and so outrageous just for the sake of it, effectively. Or, well, I mean, I, 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 yes, I mean, it, it's, it was obviously a very striking collaboration, and it's obviously part of Grayson Perry's work that he does a kind of living performance uh, and his building should be part of the performance, that seems to me to be right. I doubt very much, in fact I'm quite sure there's no evidence of provocation on Charles Bond's case because, uh, as I mentioned a moment ago, he knows his history really well, Mm. better I think than any architect I've ever met, has an astonishingly thorough and complete and almost Pigeon-like range of knowledge uh, about historical building. Designers, designers, and we don't tend to calculate these things when they're designed, but it's obviously in there somewhere, which makes buildings such as Chelsea's very enjoyable to analyse and to uh, and to describe because they go on giving in the many references they have to architectural traditions. He's really, um, I'm sure there are others, but of those whom I've met, uh, Charles is really an outstanding uh, example of an architect who has complete grasp of. This history. He must have got it himself because he went and had it in his architectural education. Mm. We were not just when I was here, but when I was an undergraduate at Cambridge, which was in 1982. The thing more striking than anything else, I still think to this day, really bizarre, is that there we were in a town full of fabulous old buildings, and you were not allowed to make any reference to any part of any of them. When you were talking about what you were designing yourself, but when I said really? you were not allowed, you looked on by pity, with pity as being somebody kind of stupid. Uh, there were things going on to stir up a bit. The, the phenomenologists were taking off. Uh, I was taught by Peter Carl in my second year, which was a very uh, in, enjoyable and worthwhile experience, even though it was came, you know, it was a bit foreign to me. And I think probably if I'd been more grown up, I'd have made more of it. But the the the. Peter Collins Jones described the school at that time as being a battleground between the positivists and phenomenologists, and it certainly felt like that. Uh, and uh, they certainly wound each other up, for sure they did. Uh, and it certainly had a, a, an unpleasant effect this, on the students. But the phenomenologists weren't talking about history either. Uh, nobody was. Um, it's only 
latterly that they started to do. It's just like very, very odd when you're completely surrounded by a continuing develop, development of history uh, that you just pretend it wasn't there. Mm. Uh, and that's, um, that comes a bit out of the way in which modernist writers write about modernism as if you're just having one you know, conceptual brainstorming after the rest. But it's too far to touch from what Yeah. Well, is that perhaps a difference between sort of early modernism and late, late modernism or, or contemporary modernism in that context is now becoming more important and people are making reference even if they're yeah, perpetuating the same? Yeah. yeah. That, that, I said right at the start, the Gothic revival came about because architects had to respond to the fact that they needed to be accurate and that And that has happened to architects who had to become more responsive to historic environments because the conservation body uh, in Britain uh, it gets stronger and stronger. And um, that uh, means that you don't have any choice. Uh, you have to be able to respond to it accurately or you won't get the job. That means that if you're building in a conservation area or if you're altering a listed building, uh, you are going to have to be extremely aware. Standards of building conservation and of Architects working with a great deal of building conservation in their everyday work is enormously high in this country. Mm. The whole conservation um, framework from the legislation to the amenity societies and their various activities is incredibly sophisticated compared to most countries. Uh, you can, in England, um, get hold of a whole string of experts of one particular aspect of, for example, Victorian or, I don't know, 1950s design with great ease compared to most other countries, including other Anglophone countries, although, in fact, the Commonwealth Anglophone countries have many similarities. It seems to be an Anglo-Saxon thing, as the English says. But you, you can, um, uh, it's very sophisticated, and so therefore, if you're working in those situations, and many people working in towns are in those situations, so they have to be much more aware of it than they were. Um, the buildings that we think about are, of course, a tiny minority of what actually gets built. Mm. The majority of what actually gets built is um, somewhere off the radar. Yeah. Well, you mention that in, the, in your book, don't you? I mean, you talk about the sort of how most things that get built are pretty average or not very good. Yeah, which is which would, would make sense like if you assume a, a, a normal distribution of architectural ability, say, then most things are going to be average. Yeah. Um, but how do we... So the, 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 what's relevant to most people is that sort of bulk of average design. Like, and yes, you're right, you and I and, and the architect profession sees a lot of media coverage of all the, the high-profile buildings, the really good top-quality ones. But how do we bring up the general level of quality of everything else, of all the ones that are less good or average? Like, how does that well, develop? I'm not sure that... Yes, it has happened. And it tends to be in fairly centralised or homogenous systems. The general standard of house of Scandinavian type house building in Britain in the 1950s was pretty high. But uh, these things go drastically out of fashion. You can find no shortage of people, and the Prince of Wales is one of them, who thinks that all Georgian terrace housing is wonderful. People didn't think that from about 1840 right through till about 1920. You would be pretty hard pushed to find anybody. Pigeon grew up in those streets, mm. just didn't want it. Uh, we didn't want to know about it. Uh, 
So the fashion's kind of fair, and you can't do anything about that. What you can do something about is the actual technical quality. Technical quality of housing in the 1950s doesn't really match up to what we expect now. That means that the windows have been replaced and this, that, and next thing has gone, gone along with them. Um, and then they go out of fashion again, but it will come back. Good ordinary, good ordinary buildings, good ordinary architecture has always been a kind of holy grail, isn't it? <laughs> well, they don't have to be special. Uh, the, one of the main reasons why uh, no, what the terrible word iconic makes architects cringe uh, is because of this idea that certain students have that their building has to have a cool concept yeah. stand out in some way, and it really doesn't. By, um, by which I'm not saying I'm like, repressing geniuses and telling them to design boring terrorist houses, because that's not my decision to do. But you should certainly learn how to walk before you can run, I would say. Mm. It, it, it is very difficult. In England, it's been enforced mainly through building regulations, pretty, pretty tough on the whole. Uh, it was done in England traditionally through building acts, um, and every now and then there were problems one way or another. The, 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 the period I've been studying most recently, which is the Edwardian period, is uh, dominated by rows about the building bylaws, that's to say the building regulations as applied locally, which was the case then because they were so restrictive that they wouldn't allow people to build in the old building materials of the countryside, essentially. So you get landowners in 1900 saying, I've got these beautiful thatched cottages and I want to give them kitchens and bathrooms and they want me to build a thing that looks like a piece of public housing model, well, the sort of public housing a brick extension because mm. that's the only thing building regulations will, will uh, allow. But by and large, building regulations have been perfectly reasonable and brought buildings up to a reasonable standard. How you arrive at, um, well, what I think Houses says is that the way to arrive, what I'm proposing that, and it can't be anything other than a hypothesis, I think, is that the way to improve the general standard is by having a much more informed and intelligent way of talking about buildings in the first place. Because if, if architects are talking about buildings in conceptual terms, in intellectual terms, it's not much use to anybody else, really. It's not already any useful way of communicating, and there has to be a common language across everybody in order for um, for building to for more people to take interest in building and informed interest in building for building to improve. Mm. One story I'm very struck by, which I recorded in that, was that a student of mine called Anne Summerfield, uh, who was one of the early students at the Kent School of Architecture, said who um, was talking about how um, the, uh, a large international practice uh, put an exhibition on in Chatham of a big dockside development, uh, and the drawings are fantastic, and they're beautifully drawn, and it was full of uh, renders that you think anyone could understand and so on, and it was met with incredulity and some degree of annoyance from the locals. And what, uh, what uh, Adam said was, I think it's a very profound thing, really, which is that if you can talk about what these buildings rather than trying to show them the flashy pictures, talk about them in the story terms, almost, about what they're meant to recall, or what they're meant to remind you of, or what it is that they promise. If you can do that, then you can communicate with more people. If you make more of a story about what buildings are about, you might get over the problem that the great majority of people who use buildings are just not able to read drawings or be particularly sympathetic to them, and certainly need, need not have any interest in, in, in the theory behind it. What they want to know is what is it? There's nothing patronizing about that. Everybody likes stories. The stories all different kind of levels of sophistication. And that I think is really important to find a way of talking about buildings. Uh, enormously important. It's always going to be the job of the designer to be the designer. But the 
position of the designer in society is is really the result of the level of communication mm. between the two. Yeah, you say that if uh, you suggest you say that Adam Sutherland suggested that non-architects might understand architects' ideas better if they heard the story behind them and understood the kind of world the designers were trying to create in literary terms, rather than through an exhibition of drawings and sophisticated animations. Yes, and it's worth pointing out something that comes shock to us or can come shock to architects, which is that great majority of people don't understand drawings. They don't understand animations. Hmm. Well, do you, do you think technology has a role to play in that, like with the rise of VR and 3D and, yeah, and that kind of thing? But do we need to do we need to sort of give people more access to that kind of yeah, thing? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the, one of the uh, something that's very striking uh, about changes in technology is the big role it plays in building conservation. Well, one of the uh, ironies is that it's very often building conservation people, people who, who, who deal with it regularly from architectural point of view, are in fact using the most exciting and innovative building technology. The, the, the um, Dalton Deeming is the Sinatra fabric of Canopy Cathedral. He came to talk to us about how that 12th century glass was reset in a new stone window. The only way the glass, of course, had distorted over the last mm. several uh, and so um, building a, 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 a flat plane of a piece of window tracery wasn't going to help. The only way in which you could work out how to do it was by scanning the individual bits of glass and by uh, creating from that the template for the, for, for the mugs because there wasn't any other way in which you could do it. In fact, you couldn't measure anything more accurately and put it together without using that type of technology. So although, of course, it's true, that those, that, well, that of course is, well, that scanning technology is slightly different, but those type of um, visualizations being used very often in complicated, mostly new buildings like the roof of the British Museum Court, and that kind of of course, relating to an old building, worth remembering. Mm. But the, the, they have uh, great application, I think, in, in building conservation and in building in historic environments, and that they are interesting yeah well it's interesting that though you sort of focus on that particularly british idea of, of an idea of conservation and of, sort of architectural history and one of the things that the housing minister said recently that struck me as interesting was he wants to wants architects to create the conservation areas of the future and i sort of think well can you think of any developments that might meet that like say arcadia in cambridge or something will that in 100 years time will there be someone scanning that and putting a two-star listing on it or anything like that and what is it that will make a conservation area of the future well it's a very good question to ask uh, at the moment because historic england is exactly considering all these things we at the church Central society carried out a pilot study uh, on the protection of conservation areas uh, it's an area which is uh, under explored um, you can see the, uh, the, the, the terrible rash of plastic windows including one reason as to why it's important Areas aren't protected, the character changes completely. But things that seemed normal but high quality can very quickly become a mess uh, when there's no control over it whatsoever. Um, the, what is certainly the case, it's not surprising that it's happening, and I think in a way it's not unreasonable that it's happening, is that uh, historic England has to take into account more and more aspects uh, of 
the value of a building. Uh, so therefore, the community value of a building, for example, could be as important as the architectural value. The architectural value is of interest to a very small number of people. The community mm. value is of, uh, of interest to uh, a lot of people. I'll give you a very good example of that, actually. There, there is a, there's a pair, there was a pair of architects called Seeley and Paget, uh, uh, at whose expense I've had a lot of fun, <laughs> another, uh, because they were terrible designers. They obviously employed some decent people, but they themselves couldn't design their way out of the fake bank. Uh, the buildings were just terrible. And uh, they did a lot, though, because they were both of them very well connected socially. And they were, for example, Dyson Surveillance to the Dyson's of London, like Fourth Lord Churches. They did a good one, Stevenage, but most of them were just awful. Uh, they designed a church in Tottenham. St. John the Baptist, uh, which was under threat recently, and one of the local residents um, put in an application to have the building listed, uh, and approached me to write something in favour of the listing. Now, uh, all I've ever done is say what terrible architects these were, and what <laughs> how terrible their buildings were, and in fact, in Bleak Houses, I actually showed that building as an example of one of their terrible buildings. Now I'm in a situation where I have to uh, say that it's worth keeping, even though it's useless. Now the argument that it's you know it's it's so useless it's quite funny uh, is an architect is an argument we might enjoy but historic England that has political accountability can't really use it as a way of preventing a developer from doing something. What you can say for sure about that movie though is that it's a major landmark and really the only significant landmark on the A10 on the Great Cambridge Road that runs mm. down the middle of the road. When you see that that building, you know you've arrived in, in Tottenham. It's, it stands out like anything. Uh, it's very distinct, uh, and it is, in community terms, it's quite, I think, quite, it is genuinely a building of significance uh, to that area and the people who live around there. And if it got into trouble, if, if it got compromised in some way, that there was an application not to demolish it, but to mess it up, really, blunt it, then the landmark, the architectural landmark for Tottenham goes. That's mm. a perfectly relevant argument. It seems to be a perfectly reasonable argument to make. And certainly, and I was surprised, but maybe I shouldn't have been, that historic England evidently accepted um, the community argument and did indeed list the building. Mm. Yeah, well, I think that's a, it's an interesting point. And I mean, I think about the same thing with the, the old Birmingham Library and that they've that perhaps the, the more outrageous the building is, the more people know about it and the more conversation there is. But then you get this sort of polarization between people who really love it despite how it looks or maybe they particularly like the way that it does look and then everyone else who really hates it but still likes it as a community asset. For something like historic England, it's quite difficult. Those situations crop up all the time. That's one of them, obviously. There's a very good example of one, in fact, uh, where what you might call most people didn't like it. Um, so that it's right for the conservation movement to be perpetually challenged on its toes to make look for good reasons to keep buildings which are not obviously appealing to other people. It's right. It's one of the reasons why conservation is such a high level. Well, the conservation debate in Britain is at such a high level is because those of us involved in it do have to look for as many different arguments as we possibly can in order to, to justify keeping a building. Mm. Well, I think that that's. I mean, we're talking now about the sort of, again, the more prominent landmark kind of buildings, but on a more sort of local level, like I think what the housing minister means is sort of the the conservation areas of nice villages and or like nice Georgian townscapes or somewhere like Kensington or Chelsea or Cotswold Village or somewhere that people has 
think has a general architectural value that is worth preserving um, and retaining the quality of? And how do you get that on a on a more urban level in a in a, yeah. in a whole way rather than as an individual building that maybe does have a lot of community value? It's, it's very difficult. The, the, we had a, um, a case came up of a building designed by my cousin then at Manassi uh, on the other side of the road from Kingston and Chelsea Town Hall. Uh, this was a conservation area, uh, and we applied to uh, list it because the building was under threat. In fact, the porch and the best bit of the building, actually, the, or one of the best bits of it, which was its staircase, had very quickly been removed by the developer to ensure that the building wasn't worth keeping. Now, we said uh, to our argument, Kenton and Chelsea, was this is a conservation area, so how did you let them completely change the appearance of the front of the building? To which they said, oh, it's not a conservation area because of your house, it's a conservation area because of all the big Victorian houses around about. Well, that isn't how it should be. It either is a conservation area or it isn't. If it is one, then every house in it, whatever it is, uh, has to be considered protected unless a strong argument is made uh, otherwise. Uh, it's a sign of, of how things have changed that the and I don't know what was built there in the end, but the application at the time was to build replica Victorian, uh, replica, replica Victorian pair detached houses onto the site of a 1950s festival of Britain style house. Yeah. Well, I think I've, coming on to again one of your quotes about leading into style again. Um, you talk. You say, whole divisions of architectural style have never been through a process of intelligent criticism or debate. The awkward high Victorian provincial classical and the cheap mid-20th century almost Tudor are firmly in that category. It is not surprising, therefore, that the results are not very good. Indeed, the buildings are clumsy, incompetent, incompetently derivative, and badly judged. And do you think... In terms of again that sort of the need for a theoretical or critical debate about architecture, is that true of current architecture? That because we're not maybe not having that conversation. I think you might be slowly coming back, and there are people who do it, but prefer against Charles Holland does do it. So it, it is, and I'm sure it's a teacher. In fact, I know it's a teacher who does it, and there are other people who do it as teachers too. Uh, but the um, but it, it, it needs a lot more. Needs a lot more work. I talked there about early 20th century Tudor. Now, the Tudor is a thing that keeps on coming back in English architecture. However much critics hate it, which they do. Nevertheless, it keeps on coming back, and most of the houses, one couple of them are illustrated in narrative, the houses near me, but are completely Tudor looking buildings. Uh, Tudor are coming back again at the moment. The latest excuse for doing it is that you can build timber framed buildings the way the Tudors did, mm. in a perfectly reasonable, logical, and feasible way. So why not? And people like them anyway, and so on. Now, when in the Edwardian revival of Tudor architecture that was going on late 1890s after the First World War, in that period there was a lot of very intelligent debate about it, and that's why it's so good. The place where most of the intelligent debate was going on was in the magazine The Country Life, in fact, which uh, knew uh, and illustrated and analysed a continuous stream of 16th and early 17th century houses so that people reading it would know really well what the qualities and the references were in buildings of this kind. So it was perfectly reasonable that you get this enormous uh, increase in Tudor looking buildings. As many of them, or obviously, you know, there's only a limited number of designers living on that, but it's mm. a very high general standard uh, of Tudor building types in that period. Uh, you don't get that, really, after the First World War, uh, partly because the normal fashion thing, that people fed up with that now, and now they want something else, mostly Georgian, I suppose. Uh, from even before the First World War onwards, they're not talking about it anymore. 
and the Tudor references get thinner and leaner as you make your way through the through the twenties and thirties. But yet people adored all those Neo Tudor nineteen thirties houses, however cheap. Well, do you think that appeals? Does that appeal to the British sort of sense of history, or almost an yeah, idealising of the medieval and this kind of thing? Yeah. Well, it's it's sort of the especially the contemporary iterations are the closest thing I can really think of to a pattern book in the old sense yeah. of where you have a, a set layout or a set set of details yeah. and kind of things, and any any vaguely competent contractor can put it together. Yeah, you can exactly. Yeah. So there's something about timber frame um, aspect of Jack Beard building, but not only that, and the rest of it maybe comes by connotation, but there's something about timber frame which has kind of everyman character to it, but everyone, everyone can do it, everyone, um, it looks like you made it and it belongs to you, and mm. it makes you identify with the land from which you came, um, which is uh, a kind of act of revolt against Tory landowners, I suppose, is how they would have, how they would have seen it. Uh, one of the most interesting things that goes on, many interesting things go on um, related to this in the first decade of the 20th century. One of them is the, is the conversion of barns and agricultural buildings into genteel, what, what the people um, in that area call polite uh, houses. Mrs. Asquith, the Prime Minister's wife, converts a barn into a house. She's a person who talks all the time about herself and her family <laughs> and her She doesn't say anything at all about this dramatic thing that she's, she's just done. It must have in some way seemed to her a reasonable thing to do as a person right absolutely, you know, by definition of the hospitable establishment. Uh, it's going on uh, all over the place. There's a kind of reclaiming uh, of um, typical, identifiably, typically English building structures 
Yeah, no, it's because incredible. Yeah, and they have more, a, a, a modular timber frame construction. If you were so inclined, you could tell the story of the moderns like that, but they're not those kind of people, the moderns. Mm. The moderns are people, essentially classical people, and they like going back down to their hate. <laughs> Don't let them hear you say that. Yeah, <laughs> that's what they like. They like, they like the golden proportion of this, that. The next thing is what they talk about. That's because modernism has got an observative function, which, which by now everybody has realized. Mm. Yeah. But how how do we translate or first of all should we translate that kind of that sense of the not a sense of the bucolic but a, 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 a more of a connection to the land if you want to put it simply how can you or should you translate in that into a more urban context in mass housing schemes these days and and where's the value that can be you can be can be extracted and put into contemporary housing schemes and where should we sort of move on from that? Yeah, it's very difficult, isn't it? There was a time in the 80s where a lot of people, I remember Michael Manser, the then president of the RBA, saying so by the time the by the time the council, the county and the district road offices of people don't need housing scheme, it's very difficult to do anything that looks reasonable from a street point of view because all the dominant bits that are outside the houses are all being controlled by somebody else. Mm. And that's what the American view urbanism was about, wasn't it? It was, getting, it was trying to get the, the rail engineers out of the centre of the, the, center of the, the, the scheme. Uh, it's possible to do it. Uh, it designers read them layouts, knew that it was possible to separate the road business from the urban business. You have one outside the other. Um, it, it, it is, it's very difficult. A lot of the things to do with housing are really to do with the nuts and bolts of the housing market. Mm. Because if people don't have enough incentives to buy a house, then they won't, and that means convenient. This, that, and that's it. Well, that's what you expect, isn't it? Yeah. Well, I think that. And also, desperate, the point is made um, uh, today to be by Terry Farrell, which is that very often people will. There is a market for value design houses because people are just desperate for housing full stop. Mm. Yeah, that's true. I, I think. There's perhaps an idea that, certainly in this in the new commission that the government's launched, that if you make people really like the buildings that are proposed, that they are beautiful, um, then they'll be sort of magically get sort of sale through planning, and then suddenly we'll be able to build three hundred thousand. And maybe that's a factor, but I'm, I'm struggling to see how much that is a factor and how much it is just a very minor part of the equation. Mm. 
Yeah, well, it's one of the points that Paul Finch made at one of the um, events the other day about this was that the collapse in local authority building has been the or from his point of view was the predominant factor in the collapse of house building generally yeah. um, and and that sort of got me thinking what's the appropriate role of the state either at a national level or at a local authority level in terms of what gets built and what it looks like well, that's a good It's, it's, if, yeah, I find it strange that it's sort of in any other market, say, you, you have high quality products and low quality products and people choose them based on their preferences and on the quality. And that just doesn't seem to exist in housing. Like there's no, no, there there's no premium for a high quality house. It's yeah. like it's all entirely based on location and size and, and demand, effectively. Yeah. And, there's no, and therefore... Based on area, when you look in the, the estate agents in other countries, they always tell you what the area of every... The unit is that they're selling, where it's said they don't do it, never have done. And I didn't know what the area of my house was until I had to buy the planning commission. Mm. Uh, people don't, on the whole, know, whereas you ask a Swiss or a German, and they will tell you my house, no, my flat is 59.83 square meters. Yeah. Uh, it is fairly irrational. You've done everything to do with land in, in the kingdom. It's, it's different. It's just this long, very long history of land ownership being the main thing in uh, in every possible discussion about. Mm.
Yeah. Well, yeah. No, I think the the sort of the idea that uh, the uh, design and build contracts, for example, and the need for value engineering is degrading the quality of architecture. I think there's general agreement on that. But my, if I can take it sort of back, 100, 200 years, why, when you had uh, entrepreneurs building large Victorian or Georgian estates out in the across the fields of expanding London, what was it that made them make the buildings the level of quality they are and not even cheaper and Yeah. Well, I think that there's, there's, I suspect, general agreement that the building regulations are overall a good thing, and maybe there are the sort of a maximum set of sort of maximum limit of complexity that maybe you need to settle them for practical reasons. But I'm I'm sort of more interested in at what level should there be a design uh, check or, or design quality standard set? Should that be within the building regulations, or should it be at planning level done by local authorities or dictated by local authorities, or should it be advised to local authorities by say local design boards like at what point and to what degree should the the state or the local authority have an input into what is designed what it looks like what its sort of style it is what what the design quality is judged well, against right. it's kind of common, it? the, the, the local authorities are so shrunk that they don't have it anymore now when it existed of course uh, you'd hardly tell you you weren't surprised to hear that architects railed all the time against design control, this expression, still is expression, but design control is a much bigger thing in the days when a local authority would say, we don't want any you know, red pantile roofs in this whole street. Uh, and they, doesn't, that doesn't really have 
any more, does it? But that did happen once, uh, and uh, it was used as a way of maintaining certain standards uh, that the English were not particularly interested in putting up with. If you look at the level of, of, of um, homogeneity in Danish suburbs, for example, it's because there are kind of official good taste artists to certainly look at the thing that's put like mm. that maintain it. It's not because they are, because they're somehow fundamentally different. They're, so it, it was, there were good things that were bad things, but there were very, some very distinct advantages to the British spending system. For example, the one thing the British spending system was determined to stop at all costs and has done is people building in the middle of nowhere or on the fringes of towns. You don't ever get a situation in England that you get in Italy where one town just drags on to become the next one. Yeah. And, and most countries have this. But the British planning system, which was also adopted in the Middle East by Israel and Jordan, for example, you just don't have it. Um, that is no great kind of advertising all over the place. There are big successes to British planning. The, it's very difficult to enforce design control, it seems to me. Again, it's an area where some kind of intelligent discussion about what is, what is desirable and what is not is something worth mm. having. But it is very difficult. Yeah, but it, is it possible to put a, a sufficient degree of, of design, good design guidelines into sort of almost regulations or, or to lighter level sort of design, design guides like the London Design Guides that bureaucrats or local authorities can understand and implement rather than having... Yeah, it has worked. The Essex Design Guide worked very well, in fact, I would say. I, I can't tell you what derision it was. I don't really remember when it was introduced, but I do remember, which I think was mid-70s, so it wasn't even mid-70s, but certainly remember people talking about it in the late 70s and early 80s as if this was some horror that was introduced. Mm. So like, on the whole, fairly benevolent effect, the Essex Design Guide, I think, an intelligent piece of work. Uh, and it was something set out, that the county authorities set out to create a level of design that people could respond to without knowing anything much about buildings. Mm. Uh, but but do, you think, do you think the sort of the, the legislative or regulatory level is the appropriate level for that to happen though? Because like, obviously my, my, my instinctive reaction to a document or a set of sort of bureaucrats saying you have to design this this way is who are you to tell me how I have to design yeah, things? Yeah, but so so should it happen? The great majority of English people say, "Who are you to tell me?" That's exactly what they will think. It's not, that's not a winnable battle. I don't think the only thing that is winnable is to, is to have some kind of easily um, communicable way of talking about the qualities of building. Mm. That's that returns again to what we were saying before about storytelling and narratives and so on. I think the Essex Design Code did that. Can't really see anything much wrong with it. Uh, it didn't. It wasn't, you know, it stops the great genius from the Bartlett designing their concrete tower block in the middle of the North Village, but, but the, it would be quite a small minority if that's what they wanted to do. Mm. Uh, all these things have got broad political connotations that you need to take a lot of people with you, whatever it is that you, that you decide to do. Yeah. Well, there is. Well, I think how quickly people change their front doors when they brought their councillors. Yeah. Well, is, there, is it the answer, therefore, perhaps more within architectural education itself, that if you sort of change the philosophy of architectural education to make, make architects not want to go out and be the big egotistical person putting a concrete block in the middle of nowhere, that that's actually a, a more, I don't know, a, a more sustainable, I guess, way of, of 
of changing the problem, of, of, of fixing the problem. Where does that horror come from? Why is there such a, a revulsion at even the mention of the possibility that you might learn something from history? Well, is that maybe where the answer lies in, in making the RBA guidelines? <laughs> so I'm, I'm curious about this, about the general, the general um, skepticism that people sort of have towards the RBA. It's like. been struck as well like reading some of the slightly older um older books on theory during part three yeah. i've been struck by the the lack of clock of works as in almost any existence at all mm. anymore in any projects yeah. maybe maybe on the largest yeah. ones but no, I mean, uh, I'm not, I mean, 
projects, but I'm not that bad because I've had to read a lot of stuff from part three stuff recently. And um, that is all that has all changed, hasn't it? It's mm. changed. But the big thing that's making the project manager is essentially just an administrator in charge of, uh, of all those decisions. I can see how it happened. Um, but there may be ways of countering it. If you watch Grand Designs, one of the things very striking about Grand Designs is that the presenter never mentions them, almost never mentions the names of the architect. He had mm. the recent series because the recent series was about the RIDA has zero awards, and then he did. But he doesn't well that's because it's it's a program about stories isn't it it's about people it's designed for the viewer who's dreaming about building their own house and stuff yeah yeah no. Well, the other thing that struck me about Grand Designs is that it's it's the primary gateway by which most people in the country engage with architecture, probably, because it's what yeah. Channel 4's most popular, I think, most popular program, or certainly one of its most popular programs. And that therefore, what it, the way that it's presented affects the way people perceive architecture. Yeah. And there's almost this... First of all, this binary set of, oh, architecture is for rich people building houses in the countryside and having a child while doing it and going over budget and coming through in the end. Yeah. But it's very, and obviously it plays into the story in that sense, but it's very, there's no real criticism about the actual architecture itself. Like, I was thinking, I was, I was missing... Um, Yeah, I mean, I, I think about programs like by Jonathan Meads, for example, yeah. and that kind of level of deep criticism of architecture is it is very rare. But I think even the fact that that existed at the time was something, yes. and now nothing like that exists really. true that it isn't interesting or important to the kinds of people who want to watch the kind of program that Grand Designs is yeah. but then but then because I remember the culture show on BBC2 used to do segments about architecture like um, about particular buildings or yeah. again but yeah, yeah. Uh, the, um, the what's it called what's it called Saturday Review the arts program on Radio 4 Saturday never talks about buildings they talk the only time they do is in the Sterling Prize mm. but the prize it's not a conversation about architecture, is it really? It's a conversation about that design. Who's, who's winning, yeah. Who's winning, and there's only there anyway because it's a prize. Mm. And it's obviously not true that you can't talk about uh, architecture on the radio. Perhaps not, is it? Yeah. But has there, has, there, has there ever been a proper public conversation about architecture? That, like, was, was, this, was it a prominent... No, I don't know. Sometimes when that was what Prince Charles thought he was doing, it's hard to tell. Yeah. It's a dramatic character in 
But like when the when the Gothic revival was starting up, was there a prominent public conversation about about yeah, it and about it going on? There was more of them, and I say that having read a lot of journalism of the period, is that there were several non uh, they were literary cultural magazines in which they did talk, which they would quite regularly have decent uh, articles about buildings and what they thought, what they were like, um, of all political colours, and there were also. Catholic ones, or church of England ones, but they were conservative ones, or Tory ones, and Whig ones, as it were. Mm. Uh, the Edinburgh Review, and all these court, the, the Gentleman's Magazine, but there certainly was. Depended a lot on very good writers, of course, which is not something you can conjure up out of anywhere. But if you went to the, the equivalent of most magazines today, which might be the Spectator and no, well, I, yeah, I keep an eye on the Spectator list because you're like music and cinema and all this kind of thing. And architecture is never there anymore; it just doesn't exist. But why is that? Why is why is it? Become like that. Like what, what's what's I'm happened? Saying, uh, one of the reasons why the leadership is that spectators are very different from Roger's group, and I suspect, uh, well, I, uh, you know, if you read it, that's the impression you get. Uh, and the reason is that he's perhaps the only one that they've <laughs> heard of. Yeah. They've never heard of, in fact. And if there were other people with different views, they might listen to them instead. Yeah. Well, it seems strange to me because architecture is the one art, if you want to call it that, that you can't avoid. That no one can avoid it at all. Like you can't choose. You can choose to go and see a film. You can choose to go see a play. You can't choose to not see a building when you're walking past it. So it's, I mean, maybe it's to do with the timing or the nature of it or the fact that it's difficult to define. But it does seem very strange to me that there isn't that conversation. Yeah, I don't know Yeah. Mm. Well, do architects need to be noisier, generally, in public? <laughs> Perhaps, yes. Right, well, we'll call it a day in that case. Thank you very much, Tim, for joining us, and this conversation will continue, I'm sure. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Oh, excellent.